And that's chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul writes this. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Amen. We've got an important topic this morning, so I'm just going to dive straight in. Looking at verse 1, if you keep page 991 open, looking at verse 1 of chapter 2, you might think the topic is prayer, our corporate prayer life. And in a way that's true. I'm hoping that today does get this church praying more widely, more enthusiastically than before. But actually, the topic is really God this morning. God is the topic, verses 3 to 6. It's all about Him. And that's actually entirely right, because if we want to pray well, we need to know the God we're praying to. Actually, whenever the Bible gives training in prayer... It often ends up talking about God, what he's like, our Father in heaven. Good prayer starts with good theology. Not that kind of professors make the best prayers. I'm not talking about kind of really complex, difficult ideas. More just, we need to know the one we're speaking to if we want to pray. The fundamentals of what God's actually like. And so if you're just looking in on Christian things this morning, it's a great morning to be here because we'll see some extraordinary things about our God. So let's dive in. There's an outline on the back of uh, the service sheet, if you want to follow along. You'll see we've got three points. And the first point um, comes from verse 1, which mentions various kinds of prayer, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Actually, I don't think Paul particularly wants us to kind of disentangle those varieties check we're doing each one. I think it's more, the emphasis is the end of the verse. Various kinds of prayer made for all people. I think that's the emphasis of this passage, because all people is there in verse 1, all people is there in verse 4, God desires all people to be saved, and all people is there um, in verse 6, Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. Yes, pray all kinds of prayers, but particularly pray them for all kinds of people. That's the emphasis. All people, all people, all people. So, as Paul encourages Timothy to get this church in order, to get it behaving rightly as God's household, right at the top of his positive agenda is get praying widely. Outward-looking prayer, prayer for all kinds of people. 
But if you're reading carefully, and I hope after last week you would be checking that what I say is what's actually what the Bible's saying. We saw that matters last week. If you're looking carefully, you'll see that I'm saying all kinds of people, but Paul says just all people. Verse 1, verse 4, verse 6. So why am I saying all kinds of people? Well, it's worth saying the word all that Paul's using could mean every single individual, that is, all without exception, or it could mean every kind of person, that is, all without distinction. So every tribe, tongue, background, status in society. Either is possible, just from the word on its own. But I think it's the second option here. In this passage, I think it's every kind of people. Why? Well, firstly, because verse 2 and verse 7, Paul mentions a couple of specific kinds of people that actually we might be tempted not to pray for. Just look at verse 2. He specifies for kings and all who are in high positions. At the time of writing, that's talking about Roman emperors, people like Nero, who obviously was no fan of the church, pagan, polytheistic persecutors of the church. Paul says, those kind of people I want you to pray for with thanksgiving and intercession. Pray on their behalf to God. And then verse 7, another kind of people. Verse 7 mentions Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish nations, the peoples that Paul particularly took the message of Christianity to. And it's, again, a group that some people felt should be excluded from the ways of God. And just notice in verse 7 how strongly Paul points out that God gave him the job of taking the message there. So verse 7, For this I was appointed, a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Why does Paul feel he needs to specify so strongly that God gave him that job? Why does he emphasize, I'm telling the truth? Well, because here's a church that might be tempted just to restrict the gospel message to a narrower set of people. Maybe Jesus is just for particular kinds of people. Why am I saying that? Well, think back to chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, there are these dodgy teachers, false teachers in the church and family. They're swerving from the gospel, and they're particularly using the Old Testament wrongly. Um, catch up online if you want the full version, but just look back at chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. These people are devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation. And chapter 1, verse 6. They've wandered away into vain discussion. And as you read on, it, it seems that they're misusing the Old Testament. And I think misusing it to say... Rather than showing that every single person on the planet falls short of God's standards and so needs Jesus and the gospel, rather than doing that, they were using the Old Testament to create some kind of inside track with God. Whether it's you've got to be in the right family tree, genealogies, or you've got to keep the laws of Judaism. And if you have, and by the way we have, you're on the inside track. The law is for the just. Either way, this was teaching that was just beginning to to shift away from Paul's gospel, the real gospel, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus offers a salvation that every single person needs, Jew or Gentile. And so, in contrast to that narrow, exclusive, limiting false teaching, kind of Christianity is only for the kinds of people that we think are kosher. Well, Paul says, if you want to fix that problem, chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, therefore, I urge that you pray widely. Pray for all kinds of people, even pagan kings, even Gentiles. And ramming home the point, verse 7, I'm not making it up. God gave me the job of taking Christianity to outsiders. So that's the point. We should pray for all kinds of people. That's point one. And why? Well, this is point two, and it comes from verse three and four. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Why should we pray for all kinds of people? Because God desires all kinds of people to know the truth and be saved. And this is a glorious truth about God. However cold your limbs are, I hope this warms your heart, that God has compassion on people he has made, wherever they are, whatever they're like. Such an extraordinary thing. Even though this world, this city, is full of people that reject God, We ignore him. We rebel against everything he says, everything he stands for. People don't thank him for the life and the breath and the blessings he he gives us. The one thing people do do to God is blame him when things go wrong, but then ignore him the rest of the time. Those people from all shapes, sizes, backgrounds, races, genders, sexuality, those people, he wants to save them every tribe and tongue. And this isn't just words. There's historical evidence that this is God's desire. He loved the world so much he sent his son that whoever believes in him would not perish. Or last week, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners all over the place. Sinners from Saudi Arabia and Scotland, from Rome, from the Republic of Ireland, from Jewish backgrounds, Muslim backgrounds, pagan backgrounds, spiritualist backgrounds, atheist backgrounds, every tribe and tongue. Now, there's a couple of loose ends to tie up in a moment, like why does verse 2 go on about rulers so much, and does verse 4 mean everyone's going to be saved? We'll tie those up in a moment, but, but just before we tackle those things, just let's reflect on this together for a moment. Let's just think... To what extent, as a church family, are we genuinely outward-looking in our prayers? We'll have more time to talk about this in our small groups. Um, And it's wonderful that we have small groups praying week by week and, and prayer triplets and central prayer meetings. It's great that this is a church that prays. And it's right that some of our prayers are for our concerns, what's going on in church life, our anxieties. Those prayers please God. Philippians 4 or 1 Peter 5, tell us to pray about what we're worried about. But alongside that, do we also ask for others outside the church? Do we pray to God as the great saviour of those who don't know him yet? I think actually we've got a lot to learn from Christian unions here. Uh, Maybe maybe you were in um, one as a student 
Uh, maybe you're in one at the moment as a student. And a regular part of our time together is, is praying for outsiders, friends who don't know Jesus. But it's easy for that to just start to drift off the agenda as we get older and more settled in life. We'll have time to discuss this. We talked yesterday about how helpful an exercise it is, just making a list of all the people I know in all my networks who don't know Jesus, and then thinking, will I pray for them? When and how and with whom could I pray for them? That's a great thing to do, but when we sit down to do that kind of exercise, if you're like me, there'll be some people you think, oh yeah, I'll definitely pray for them, and then there's a whole group of people you think, well, there's no chance. (laughs) It's not even worth it. I mean, they're so hostile or so indifferent or so committed to their current beliefs or worldview or religion. Would I really pray for them? Well, God desires all kinds of people to be saved. So let's not pre-filter who we think can be saved. Just remember Paul, chapter 1, an example of Jesus' patience. If he can be saved, the kind of ISIS of, of acts, the one going around trying to stop Christians by death if necessary, if he was saved, then we can certainly pray for anyone we know. I remember sitting in a church, it was a small church, maybe 30, it had been a church plant, a few years old, in a village, and uh, looking across one row, there was um, a pensioner who just turned to the Lord in the kind of last years of his life. There was a single mum, there was a postman, there was a partner in a city law firm, a big high-flying law firm. It was absolutely wonderful. God desires to save all kinds of people, no discrimination. But sadly, one of the the facts of church history is that there are times in church history where the church has lost that vision, where we've just focused on people like ourselves. Um, In the first century, it was often this this Jew-Gentile issue. But at other times, the boundaries have been about race. So some churches under apartheid, some churches in the south of the US. Sometimes it's social class. So in England, sometimes the gospel was kind of kept to the ladies and the gentlemen of polite society, not the laborers. They don't need a service. They don't need pews. Sometimes it's gender. Sometimes it's education. Only those who can speak Latin. Sometimes it's economic status. So are rich Christians in the UK willing to go to areas of urban deprivation to share the gospel? But also, are those with a more kind of Marxist socialist bent, are we willing to say even rich people need the gospel? Or do we think They don't deserve it. No one deserves the gospel. That's the point. That's why we need the gospel. It's actually a shameful thing when churches are not concerned about all kinds of people because our God is concerned about all kinds of people. We can't reach everyone on the planet as this local church, but we can be praying widely and doing our bit to share the news. So please, in small groups, do think through that. Of the people I know, is there anyone I I think it's not worth praying for? Let's turn back, though, to that verse 2 question. Why, if if God cares about all people being prayed for, why particularly single out rulers? Um, I said earlier, it might be because we're, we're, tempted, well, we're, we're tempted to exclude them from our prayers. Like, do we really think of praying for Prince Charles to be converted or all of Theresa May's cabinet 
to be converted, or Nicola Sturgeon and Ruth Davidson praying that they'd become devoted followers of Jesus. Do we pray that, or do we think, well, there's no chance, that's a ridiculous kind of prayer. Jesus is more powerful than them, and he turned Paul around, so he can turn anyone around. It's partly that, but actually, if you read verse 2 again, there's a, there's a more specific reason as well to, to pray for kings and those in authority. Verse 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleases God our Savior. We pray particularly for those who have power and influence in society so that Christians can get on with living peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified lives. Which on first reading, I don't know about you, but it sounds a little bit like we're supposed to pray so we could all just have a nice, private, quiet existence. You know, just keep ourselves to ourselves, a low profile, maybe get a dignified house in the suburbs and a lawn to mow. Um, now, I've got nothing against lawns, let me say that. Um, actually, our flat comes with a lawn and it's plastic, um, so you don't even have to mow it. It doesn't get quieter than that. Um, so, so lawns are great. Houses are great, um, but actually, this isn't talking that, about that kind of cozy image of middle-class comfort at all, because that wouldn't fit with, with what verse 3 onwards tells us about God. Just think about it. Why does Christians living a godly, quiet, dignified life please the God who wants to save people specifically? What's the connection between our godly living and God's desire to save people to answer that, we need to remember the heart of 1 Timothy. And just flick over the page to chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Johnny reminded us of this earlier. We'll keep coming back to it through this series. It's the heart of the letter. Chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writes this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of and buttress of the truth. So we said Paul's writing to tell the church how to behave, but it matters how we behave because we're God's household holding up God's truth in the world. That is, the church, the local church, is the one place on earth you can hear God's truth and see the difference it makes. And so it really matters that in our society we have the freedom to speak about Jesus and the freedom to live Jesus' way. I mean, the last thing we want to face is gagging orders, not being allowed to host events like Passion for Life, the Arts Festival coming up later this term, or Christianity Explored starting, or continuing tomorrow night. How would people hear about Jesus? And we don't want to the government to start passing laws where you can't live distinctively as a Christian, the way Jesus says to in the Bible, because those lives of godliness are actually putting God's truth on display to a watching world. Now, of course, governments have tried that in many countries. They still do, and the gospel still thrives. God can still build his church, but here we're told to pray that that freedom to live and speak for Jesus would continue in our culture. As Christians, we don't want to be known as troublemakers in society. 
And so we should pray for our rulers, for their rule. It's actually a wonderfully countercultural thing, Matt. That as Christians, we should care about our leaders, both as rulers and as people. I think we live in an age of unprecedented hostility and disrespect to all forms of government and authority. Just think about it. How are our politicians talked about? Rarely honored, respected, frequently mocked, ridiculed, attacked. And Christians and churches should be radically countercultural in this as we support them, pray for them, even thank God for them and their rule, as well as praying for them to be saved as people. So easy, isn't it, just to jump on the bandwagon of people slagging them off? But it pleases God if we pray for them. Yes, for wisdom to rule. Yes, for personal salvation. And yes, for a government that keeps freedom to live and speak for Jesus. So an American friend asked me, are you saying you need, I need to pray for Trump? I said, yes, with thanksgiving. That's a challenging thought, isn't it, for some of us? Depends on your political views, but for some of us, many of us perhaps. But this is talking about Nero. And we haven't quite got to that stage in the West yet. Pray specifically for rulers, because God desires all people to be saved. Let's pray for a society where churches can live and speak, uh, live in a godly way and speak the gospel of Jesus. That's the first question to cover. The second question comes out of uh, point two. It's a big question and we're not going to have time to really tackle it properly, but the question is there on the handout. If God desires all people to be saved, does this mean everyone will be saved? After all, God is in control, isn't he? He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. Psalm 115, God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So then, will everyone be saved? It's a massive question. And there's an article, a really good article by John Piper called um, Does God Desire All People to Be Saved? Which I recommend, if you want to look into this more carefully, that's the place to go. The home group leaders um, have uh, a link to it. It's free online. But just in today's sermon, I want to outline two serious dangers to avoid as we think about that. Um, Firstly, does verse 4 mean everyone will be saved? Short answer, no. And people who teach that are false teachers. And this isn't something that was only true in the first century or only came about in the first century. So you may have come across Rob Bell, a book called Love Wins, which teaches in the end everyone ends up okay with God. That flatly contradicts the Lord Jesus. Do you remember, even last term, Matthew 13, the parable of the net or the parable of the weeds, Jesus said on judgment day there will be a division, some to eternal life, some to destruction. Jesus said that. So we can't think that in the end everyone is saved. It's just not true. It's a lie. Must avoid that. Um, the other uh, danger to, to avoid in this area is, is to think off the back of that, if everyone's not saved, but in one sense God desires all, all people to be saved, does that mean God's just not strong enough? Maybe he just can't override people's choices, people's will. Again, the short answer is that's not true either. Think about Paul. Paul hated Jesus and everyone who stood 
for him. And yet Jesus stopped him on the road and said, I'm going to save you and use you. In fact, any person who becomes a Christian only becomes a Christian because God was gracious to save them, to give them trust in Jesus, to give them a new heart, faith, sight to see. It's actually why a Christian can never boast. This is one of the reasons it matters. A Christian can never boast that the reason I'm a Christian and someone else isn't is because of me, something in me, because I made the choice. Because I see a bit more clearly than that guy down the road. Not at all. A Christian chooses Christ because God has chosen to give him faith. Now that raises a whole host of other questions which may be flying off in your mind. And why does God choose some, not others? That kind of thing. Uh, Romans 9 is the bit of the Bible that most addresses that. Um, But we're not going to have time now to go into it anymore. So read that article and discuss it in small groups and come and talk to me if you want more on that. I can recommend some excellent books. Um, But in some ways, we could get lost down that rabbit hole and forget that the thrust of this passage is not God limiting his interest in people. Not at all. It's persuading us, actually, that there's no kind of person, no sector of society that's off-limits to God's compassion. This is actually a passage about the breadth of God's concern. Jews and Gentiles, powerful and slaves, rich tycoons, TV stars, and people in schemes, highly paid footballers, barely paid Uber drivers. Our God's compassion is not narrow or limited or stingy. His patience is not limited to a particular tribe or class. Just look at the name God's given in verse 3. It's actually the same name Paul started the book with, chapter 1, verse 1. God, our Saviour. God's desire to save is the beating heart of this book, and so should be the beating heart of every local church. And so, a church where you no longer hear prayers for people to be saved, or prayers for all kinds of people to be saved, is a church that's wandering from the gospel. Let's make sure that isn't happening here. On to our final point, point three. There's a curious thing about God's desire, just just to um, flag this before we get there. There's a curious thing about God's desire in verse four. It's not just he wants all people to be saved. I guess we can understand that. He also wants people to come to a knowledge of the truth. Why does that matter so much? Why does God so want people to know the truth? Well, as we saw last week, because the truth, the good news about Jesus coming into the world to save sinners, that truth is the only thing that can save people on the planet. God wants people to know the truth because he wants people to be saved, and that's the way. And verses 5 and 6 are unpacking that, helping us understand that by reminding us what the truth actually is. So here's our final point. The truth is this. Jesus Christ is the only way to get right with the only God. Just follow through that logic with me. God cares for all people, all kinds of people. He wants all kinds of people to be saved. Because he wants them to be saved, he therefore wants them to know the truth that will save them. 
But why do they need that truth? Well, because there's only one God and there's only one way to get right with him. That's the truth. Now, that might sound outrageous. It was equally outrageous in a polytheistic pagan Roman empire. It's a radical thing to say in multicultural Britain. It was radical then. All the varieties of religions and non-religions in our cultural supermarkets The Apostle Paul, speaking for Jesus Christ, says there's only one God. That's the truth. And as we'll see, one way to get right with him. That comes with unavoidable implications. It means anyone who believes there's no God is wrong. And God wants them to know that truth, so they're prepared to meet him. Likewise, it means anyone who believes there are many gods, or many ultimate forces, or many faces of God is wrong. I know that's a strong thing to say. Let me tell you about one of the most sobering days of my life. Uh, When I was back in London, um, there was a day when uh, I visited a a Hindu temple and then a Sikh Gurdwara and then a mosque. They're all in a, a particular area quite close to each other and saw the sincerity of hundreds of worshippers, all praying. Praying to radically different gods. And I sat there thinking, with a heavy, heavy heart, even on their own terms, these can't all be true. And actually the Bible says, they're all false. That's, that's what this passage is saying. It's an uncomfortable thought. It's an uncomfortable thing to say. And so lots of thinkers and and religious teachers in the West have tried to claim, well, maybe there's one God behind it all, but just many ways to that God. You may have heard it as many paths up the mountain or many different insights into the same ultimate being or different ways to approach God. After all, at least with Judaism and Islam and Christianity, at least there there's shared monotheistic belief. We all agree there's one God. Do we really need to pray for Jewish friends who are not trusting Jesus or Muslim friends to come to know the truth? Well, let's read on in verse 5. For there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. See, the truth of the gospel is not simply there's one God. Actually, just agreeing there's one God would not help anyone because we've all wronged him. The core message of Christianity is there's one way to get right with the one God, one real way, one mediator, who works for any human being to be reconciled to their maker. Actually, the stark thing when you look into other religions is it's precisely this truth that people disagree on. Even distorted forms of Christianity disagree on this truth. Is Jesus the unique mediator, the one way to get right with God. That's often the thing that's denied. The key issue isn't actually how many gods do you believe in, it's how are you going to get right with the God who's there. And all through the Bible story, there's one simple answer that someone is going to have to pay. Someone's going to have to pay a ransom Because God can't just ignore sin. He can't just brush it under the carpet. He can't just say, well, it doesn't matter. 
He can't actually break his promise to Adam or to Israel that those who rebel against his um, commands must die. He can't break that promise. Someone has to die. The penalty has to be paid, which is why there's only one real mediator, Jesus, the one who did die for us. Just look at how verse 4 stresses, uh, sorry, um, verse Verse 5, stresses that Jesus was a man. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus had to be a human being to pay for human sin. To die on the cross for us. And that's why he's a perfect mediator, representing us to God. And there is nothing like that in any other worldview religion. Outside of that truth, there is no salvation. God loves people enough that he wants them to know that. And I guess it's our prayer as a church family that we would love people enough to pray that they'd know that and to play our part in telling people If you're here not as a Christian, I don't know what you're making of all this. It's pretty stark. It's pretty blunt, isn't it? But God wants you to know this. He loves you enough. He just tells it straight. There's one way to get right with him. Jesus Christ. And I hope for those of us who are church family, the kind of chain of logic through this passage is compelling Step one, pray for all kinds of people. Why? Well, the heart of it, step two, because God cares about all kinds of people. He wants them to know the truth. Why do they need to know the truth? Why is the truth so important? Well, because there's actually only one way to be saved. Every person needs to know about that because it's their only hope. In the supermarket of ideas... Actually, only one of them works, even though lots of them look good. There's one truth in the world, and it's surrounded by half-truths, by lies. That's actually why last week false teaching is such a serious thing in the local church, because it's distorting the one truth that saves. And it's why this week we should pray for people from any background, in any current religion, in any current worldview, with any current view of Jesus and the gospel, because they all need him. As we close then, I'm aware, in verses 5 and 6, in two short verses, God says to us, through his apostle, a number of stark, and in our culture, massively politically incorrect things to say. In our culture, this is precisely the kind of teaching that people would call narrow-minded or intolerant or exclusive or bigoted. But just notice, there's a real irony here. The tone of this passage could not be further from that description. The reason God's telling us this is because he does care about everyone. He wants everyone to know His compassion extends to all kinds of people. He's pleased when churches pray outward, not just inward. Widely, 
not restricting ourselves to narrow people just like us. In fact, it's precisely because the death of the Lord Jesus works for anyone. It's a door through which anyone can open and come. Well, that's why the invitation goes wide. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. In fact, the only way um, people get excluded is if local churches start to filter who we pray for or who we speak with. Let me lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your heart for the lost. We thank you that as Jesus looked out on those crowds, he had compassion. Thank you that as he looked over Jerusalem, he was moved. And Father, we pray so much that as your household, as your family in this city, we pray that we would reflect that as a local church. We pray the same for many other local churches in this city and in this nation, that you would help us to be those who pray widely and share your truth widely. You know that so often our hearts are just turned in on ourselves, and we ask that you would turn us out. Please give us love for those around. In Jesus' name, amen.